Welcome to the BizTimes MKE podcast and another episode of Leadership Lens. I'm Arthur Thomas, Managing Editor at BizTimes Media. And on Leadership Lens, we are joined by Marquette University President Michael Lovell and business leaders from throughout southeastern Wisconsin. Our first two episodes featured Tim Sheehy of the Metropolitan Milwaukee Association of Commerce and John Schlifsky from Northwestern Mutual. Check those episodes out in our archive if you're interested in hearing more. But today we're joined by Peggy Troy, the Chief Executive Officer of Children's Wisconsin. Children's, as many of you likely know, the only health system serving 100% pediatric patients in the state, serves thousands of patients every day, employs thousands of people in the region, hundreds of doctors. Uh, so lots to talk about. And of course, healthcare has been a uh, complicated and challenging uh, industry over the last few years. So certainly plenty to talk about with Peggy. So welcome to Michael Lovell and Peggy Troy. Thanks, Arthur. Thanks, Arthur. Well, Peggy, I'd love to start here, um, maybe learning a little bit more about your background um, mm-hmm. and maybe a little bit also about where where your focus is currently as CEO of Children's Wisconsin. So my background, I grew up in a medical family. My grandfather <clears throat> was the first physician to ever move to our town in northern Illinois. My father followed in his footsteps. So, uh, you know, five generations of families were being seen by a nigh doctor. And that led me to move on to go to Marquette University, where I had an awesome education and a well-rounded education, both um, in religion, philosophy, uh, the human humanities, and then nursing. And so my first job out of college was a nurse at Children's Hospital, Wisconsin, when it was down on 17th of Wisconsin um, on the Marquette campus, which is now Marquette dorm. So um, and then from there, I had progressive opportunities to increase my leadership capabilities, went to Chicago, worked at Lurie Children's, went to Fort Worth, worked at the Children's Hospital in Fort Worth, went to Memphis, Tennessee, worked at the Children's Hospital in Memphis, and then came back here. So they call me a boomerang. So I'm back. Now, now Peggy, uh, you and I have worked together closely for for a long time. You know, we're on each other's boards. Um, you know, you were you just she just won alumnus of the year award from Marquette University. You're one of our most successful graduates. You know, and I've I've heard you talk often about the importance of being a servant leader, uh, which I believe you part of what you've learned at Marquette University. Um, can you tell us about you know what servant leadership means to you, and you know how you practice it in your role as CEO of Children's? Yeah, so I really do espouse that whole concept of servant leadership. And I did learn a lot at Marquette. I mean, today Marquette is be the difference, but very mission-based organization based on the, the teachings of Ignatius Loyola, which if you read his, his teachings and his writings, you know that that is where he really became a very powerful leader within the Catholic Church. And so, you know, as a servant leader, I think the, the, the big thing for me is humility. You know, no one knows everything. We all make mistakes. And it's important to be humble, to be a good listener, and to be very self-aware. And that helps and build empowered, builds and empowers people that are around you. Uh, Because I think when people enter into a leadership role, they think they have to know it all, and they have to be kind of tough. And, you know, and I think that to be able to be humble and to be value your team around you and really care deeply about what you do every single day, that's what empowers us to be all that we can be for the kids of Wisconsin. So I think that, um, you know, the leadership, the teamwork, the the uh, the dedication to your mission and your vision, 
really helps build a solid team, trust, all those things that, again, make you be a leader that people want to be with and join arms with. And really, like you said, Arthur, through the last couple of years has been really tough. And to be able to espouse that servant leadership on behalf of the organization, I think, really helped us resolve many of the issues that we were faced with during what I would consider one of the most um, unsettling times I've ever experienced in healthcare. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, the the pandemic has been such a challenging period for healthcare. And I'm sure, you know, practicing some of that servant leadership uh, in the pre-2020 um, time period certainly, you know, helped position you um, you know, to navigate through it, but you still had to navigate through it. So, you know, maybe curious what's been maybe some of the, the most challenging parts of, um, navigating, you know, healthcare leadership during this time. I mean, granted, you have a children's population, which maybe wasn't hit in some the same way as some of the others, but there are plenty of, of challenges and concerns and worries for parents and all the things. And not to mention your staff, I'm sure, you know, stressed and, and, you know, pushed. In a lot of ways. So what's been some of the, the bigger challenges of navigating the pandemic in the last few years? So to me, um, and Arthur, you heard this firsthand at home. And of course, Mike at the university, you know, we, we also had to pay very close attention. And I think the biggest challenge of all was the pace of change. You know, this is we had to sustain continuous uh, adjustment of what was going uh, before us with a lot of questions unanswered, you know, so, you know, keeping the kids and the families and our team safe was first and foremost. I mean, and again, with in a sort of uh, information time where the information wasn't readily available, we didn't know a lot about this virus. It was brand new. We didn't know actually how it spread, uh, what the longer term consequences were. And so it, we had to continually adjust and pivot as information became available Adjusting to the altered global supply chain, um, I can tell you that there were some really sobering times when we did not have a readily supply of masks, gowns, gloves, and we had to be very, very thoughtful about how we were able to use those things so that we could keep our staff, our, our families, and our patients safe. We had to adapt to new staffing challenges uh, in a hiring environment. You know, when with the, when the emergency order came down and that we were asked to shut down services, we did close our primary care offices. And kids were not out and about doing the things kids typically do. So we saw a very steep decline in our census. And so, but our people are our greatest asset. Um, there's no question about that. And that was confirmed during the pandemic. So we had to make some really uh, important decisions. Um, we were losing about a million dollars a day in revenue. So I, my CFO, Mark Cadu, and I spent a lot of time together. But we knew that we we, we were going to come back someday, that the volumes were going to come back, the ED was going to be busy, our urgent care and primary care and the hospital. So we did not lay off, we did not furlough, and we did pay continuation. And then found jobs for individuals where we need had some gaps, uh, whether it was environmental services, dietary services, and we would use staff members, uh, nurses, respiratory therapists, and others to fulfill those jobs so that at least they had work and a paycheck and, and most importantly, became very loyal to children's because they knew that we were really taking care of them. So, um, you know, we had to do a lot of scenario planning. We had to be nimble. And back to servant leadership, I mean, we know that we are here to serve kids and their families. There's no question about that on anybody's mind. And so how are we going to continue to do that in the face of a pandemic, which none of us had ever experienced? 
Uh, it further widened the gap for health outcomes for kids, which we were, were very, very concerned about. And many of the kids that are most at risk in our community, uh, what I would say became unplugged because they weren't in school. And in, in many cases, their parents didn't have the technology required or the skill set to continue to connect them to school. And so uh, we had to really think very carefully about how we were going to outreach those kids, make sure they got their immunizations. And then with our school nurse program and others, how we could keep those kids not only medically safe, but connected to the world around them. And uh, we know today that those kids, particularly the vulnerable kids in the inner city that didn't have all those wonderful accesses to resource, um, you know, are, are going to be behind. And how do we as a community and a society help catch them up uh, is really an important question for all of us to continue to answer. Uh, we also know that the mental behavioral health issues that occurred with kids who are no longer in school, unplugged from their typical social activities and things, were uh, of great concern. Fortunately, we had started a journey down mental behavioral health back in 2017. So as these problems started to surface more intently, we were ready with resources to help them navigate their way through and still are seeing consequences of the pandemic in the mental behavioral health space. So, um, you know, we also knew that uh, the other things that were happening is there was, you know, food insecurities, housing insecurities. We, we had to address violence pre prevention and intervention. So fortunately, we have the resources and capabilities to address many of those things. And the pandemic typified uh, how we need to think about that going forward. So the one thing I always want to say about the pandemic is uh, it taught us a lot of things. It helped us bring in new uh, systems and processes that we are now woven into the fabric of the organization. Um, so, you know, lessons learned. You always learn. And uh, um, I'm just so blessed to have a great staff of people. They rallied. Uh, we communicated frequently. They understood that we cared about them. We gave them information as quickly as we it was made available to us. And actually, I've had a couple people lately um, uh, stop me and say, you know what, during that pandemic, I know you cared about us. I know that. And that, that, that at the end of the day, I think meant a lot to me personally that people really did understand that um, this organization is a caring organization beyond just the patients and their families. And Peggy, you know, you know, as a, a parent of four kids myself, uh, I know how, what, how blessed we are in Milwaukee to have, you know, a top ranked children's hospital here. And, and maybe you could just, you know, you've been around, you know, as you talked about your own journey, you know, whether Chicago or Texas or, or Memphis, you know, why is it so important to have a high level children's hospital in the community? And, and what, what, what difference do you really feel like you make, not just, you know, day to day serving kids, but in, in the broader community itself? Yeah. So Mike, um, you know, our board uh, adopted, you guys adopted a vision back in 2011 that we want the kids of Wisconsin to be the healthiest in the nation. And because we're a hundred percent dedicated to kids we can look at that vision through many different lenses and then use our assets and resources in order to put processes and systems in place to assure that we're doing everything we can to keep kids healthy. You know, we're 100% focused on kids and we, we have wide expertise and resources that no other organization in the state of Wisconsin can put towards kids. We also have a, a, a strategy that we call Care Closer to Home. We don't want a child to ever have to leave this community for the top best 
available healthcare for kids. And we've been able to do that as a sole children's hospital in that, uh, you know, we, we do have good volumes coming in. So we can, we can offer different programs and services that again, yes, meet the common childhood uh, illnesses of kids, but also in those things that are pretty rare. You know, kids, kids are, kids are pretty healthy and only about 11% of kids actually need all the services of a children's hospital. So when we are able to do that holistically, we can, like I said, put in those services that round out the kids. We think that we think of health as more than just the medical condition. We think about social health, dental health, uh, and mental behavioral health. So how do we put those pieces in parts? We are in about uh, 42 locations across the state with uh, programs that with child abuse prevention uh, and intervention, um, clinics, et cetera. But again, because we're 100% kids, all our resources go back into the community and into uh, the infrastructure that it takes for us to do all of that. So that's the dif- differentiator, and we have lived up to that promise. It's only a very rare situation where a family might have to travel for another aspect of care. Some families may choose to do that, but it's not because we don't have the program's resources. We have an academic relationship, Mike, as you well know, with the Medical College of Wisconsin. So we also balance out our mission of caregiving with uh, our research, our education, and um, we like to be the voice for kids. Kids don't vote. And so we can have an advocacy platform that's 100% dedicated to kids, where when you're in a large system organization, sometimes you have competing issues that might um, curtail you from being that voice for kids. And we can do it. We can do it all. Mm-hmm. You mentioned, you know, the, the thinking about health beyond, um, you know, just the, the immediate medical um, challenges or issues. I'm curious, you know, how does being a, you know, serving children um, kind of maybe shape some of the decisions you make? Do you have to, or do you or your teams have to hire differently or, when you're developing a, a, a process or a policy, how does it that that child, the children as a population, as you're, you know, that you're serving, how does that shape you know, decisions you're making? Well, I'll give you a couple of good examples. First of all, it takes a special per- person to work at children's. Uh, not everybody wants to work with what they consider to be sick kids. Um, I hear that a lot. Uh, so, you know, but I would tell you that's, in my personal opinion, some of the most rewarding work you can do because when you can be there for kids, um, and show up for kids in a much more holistic way, we can we can round out that whole child. And so uh, we have several programs here that actually go beyond just the medical care itself. One of our uh, specialist, uh, specialties that we hire specialists into is our child life program. These are master's trained individuals who have a, uh, a master's degree in uh, an aspect of recreational therapy. Why is that important? Well, I'll tell you that these, they know that the work of children is play and play is a powerful way to teach children, but also to help kids come through complex issues that they may be facing scary issues. So I'll give you an example. If a child comes into the emergency department and needs stitches, um, stitches can be very scary. And I can tell you when in the past, when I was a nurse, you wrap them in this thing called a papoose board and wrap them all up, you know, and swaddle them and make sure that they couldn't move their, whatever their extremities well, now we have, and then you sedate them because it was painful and they'd wiggle. And Well, today what we have is that we have a child life specialist who come, is in the emergency department. And when a child comes in with certain aspects that they might need a painful procedure, 
they use distraction therapy. So we spend, you know, time talking to the child at their age level, you know, using toys and other things. And I will tell you, it's cut down dramatically on sedation. We hardly use it anymore. And it, because we don't use sedation, it lowers the overall length of time that they have to spend in the emergency department because they don't have to wake up. And, uh, of course, we'll, if they can have one, we'll give them a popsicle and some of these other things. Well, I will tell you, parents report to me frequently that the trauma, uh, that the, the, the avoidance of trauma on these kids is substantial. And, in fact, uh, one mom told me, uh, the, the, the little boy who came in told his sister the next day, I want to go back to children's. They give you obstacles. So, you know, we we also have another project that Mike's familiar with called Project Ujima. And this is a violence uh, prevention intervention program. And as you know, violence in Milwaukee has is, is, uh, been a sobering reality. And we get many kids that come through the ED, unfortunately, that have been victims of um, violence. And so this, this, pro- and it, this program actually then works with the families right at the time the child's in the emergency department. This is the dedication. The team is, you know, called up. They come in and start to understand what led to the violence that occurred in that child's life. Sometimes families need to move. Sometimes they need uh, mental health, behavioral health services, et cetera, et cetera. So that team is there to go beyond the walls of children's and help those families get to a level of resiliency. We have a, a, a camp every summer where the kids and the families can come back together, learn about, you know, like new techniques and resilience. And what we, we understand now that it is, um, it is really cut down on recidivism. And again, if you can get these families onto a better situation for their lives, you know, the kids are going to be better. They're going to be healthier. And that fits into our vision of we want the kids of Wisconsin to be the healthiest in the nation. So, you know, to try to find, those individuals who want to work and be dedicated to the care and treatment of kids, it's its a special group. We also have the largest foster care and adoption program in the state of Wisconsin. Uh, we foster care case manage 3,000 kids. Uh, that means that we have caseworkers that go, uh, you know, that are, we have a contract with the uh, Bureau of Child Welfare, and we are the ones that then go into the families' homes, uh, do the counseling, do the therapy. Unfortunately, sometimes there needs to be a removal, but then we're able to find foster families that are very uh, loving and capable. And in fact, we um, on an annual basis have about almost 200 kids that are adopted every single year as a result of this program. Again, getting kids to resilience into stable environments so they can be healthy, productive kids uh, and have a good life. You know, Peggy, you, you, you touched on um, mental health, you know, uh, uh, earlier and, you know, as, as a board member, I was very proud of the fact that in, in 2017, that, that uh, Children's Hospital made me- mental health a priority when, when serving uh, the youth population. Um, maybe just tell us, you know, you know, how you think it's going. You know, what what are some of the taxi- tactics you've been employing? And uh, in and again, coming out of the pandemic, this is needed more than ever. And you know, you're really, yeah, to be honest with you, I, I know you, Children's Hospital Wisconsin has looked at it as a national leader in this space. Yeah, so Mike, thanks for the question. So, um, you know, we know that uh, kids are in a crisis in this country with mental behavioral health issues. We know that um, that there's increased suicide rates, uh, increased uh, rates of depression, anxiety. And I always say you can't have good overall health without good mental health. It's such an important part of how we are as people. And uh, we really have then said, okay, what 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 is our role? We know kids are struggling. We know families are struggling. And so how, how do we want to 
think about this. And of course, COVID made the situation worse. So we did an analysis, a community analysis to say, you know, what space should children be in? And back in 2017, when we looked at the assets and resources that were available in the community, we realized that inpatient psychiatric beds, actually between Rogers, Advocate Aurora and others, there was, there at the time was, was enough inpatient psychiatric beds. But what else could children's be doing? We have, you know, 124 pediatric providers, uh, primary care pediatricians and nurse practitioners in 70 or 22 offices around here. So we see a lot of kids on the front end. And so uh, we thought, okay, if we could look at this from a prevention and early intervention perspective, maybe we could break the cycle of where kids then end up in need inpatient or become truant or whatever else happens in their lives, and most importantly, suicide. So one of the things that we do now is we do universal screening. So all of our kids that come into our primary care offices, we have about 120,000 kids in our primary care practice, plus our emergency department, we screen them. We screen them for mental behavioral health issues uh, to try to identify them before they come a crisis. And then, you know, we have embedded mental health workers, thanks to uh, Marquette and Mike, um, we've been able to attract master's level mental health therapists that have come out of the Marquette program uh, to go into our primary care offices and be part of the team. So if a child at age two, uh, they're doing a developmental screen on the child and they, they, there are some issues that are surfacing that look like they are in the mental behavioral health space, they have an immediate resource right then and there. In the past, you might be handed five or six numbers and told, you know, call these numbers and see if you get an appointment. But the average waiting time could be a year to two before you actually were able to see a mental health therapist. Right now, we can do that. And if the children need a higher level of care, we have psychologists and psychiatrists that then we can advance that care as necessary. But I will tell you, in our recent experience, uh, many times the therapist is able to work with the family, teach them some new skills, work with the kids, and resolve those issues with one or two visits. We recently then um, started doing suicide screens on all kids 10 and older. It's a self-reported iPad where they, um, you know, click some answers, and we can determine right then and there if the child has is at risk for suicide and potentially has active suicidal ideation. We develop a safety plan right then and there, and then we start the progressive work of the therapy. And we have a assigned psychiatrist at the Medical College of Wisconsin, pediatric psychiatrist, who are actually right there in the ED and can start to work with these kids to get that safety plan in order. The number of times that these we see kids with suicidal ideation whose parents had no idea is somewhat alarming. So again, you know, trying to get early, trying to be able to get to the kids before it becomes a crisis. We also have school-based mental health. Uh, we're in 70 schools across the state of Wisconsin with mental health therapists. Again, schools are where the kids are. And so we can work with the teachers and the counselors and start uh, therapy sessions right then and there. And then just recently, uh, Craig Yubuki, very generous, or Jeff Yubuki, very generous donor, helped us open up our Craig Yubuki Tower, and we have a mental health walk-in clinic. So if you come home from work or you get up in the morning and something's just not going right or you've been worried for a period of time, you can come to the walk-in clinic every afternoon and, again, start with a mental health therapist. We can uh, progressively help you with a psychologist, psychiatrist. And then we have a crisis response team that's available 24-7 to de-escalate. 
um, crisis situations. Uh, we're trying to do everything we can to reduce stigma. So you've seen us a lot in the media um, uh, talking about this. We just recently had a 60-minute min- segment to, uh, where actually two families talked about uh, the mental health issues their children were um, were experiencing and what we were able to do in this new innovative way <clears throat> to help these children. And then we're continuing to advocate for more resource. Uh, we've called upon our community to help us address this issue. Uh, we have had an outpouring of support uh, financially and in many other ways for this work because my sense is of late, people are starting to talk about this. You know, in the day, in the day pull up yourself mm-hmm. by the bootstraps, you know, don't ask for help. You just need to, you, you got this. Well, that's not the case anymore. I will tell you, I get at least two or three calls a month uh, personally from friends and others who will ask me, please. And I now have something I can offer them. And, you know, five years ago, I really, I didn't have a lot. And now we do. We have a lot more to do. Um, we have a lot more to do. But uh, we're on a we're on a uh, journey that I think um, is producing some really beneficial results. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's definitely been that that shift in in culture and willingness to talk about it, but probably more to go. You, I mean, just as you've been describing, I mean, so Children's Wisconsin has you know thousands of employees and your you know locations across the state. Even within the hospital, you have different units, things like that. So curious, you know, how you go about, um, we talked a little earlier about, about culture and your approach and, and the work, you know, helping children. Uh, how do you go about kind of shaping that culture across a large organization with many kind of, you know, unique units within that that have their own kind of dynamics and culture? How do you go about trying to shape that from a, a whole a system-wide perspective um, when the day-to-day for, you know, a nurse might in the ED, they experience kind of that culture versus someone um, on a different unit, even within the hospitals. So how do you go about shaping all of that across the system? Yeah, well, I, I start out with uh, my basic philosophy is the, the child and family experience can't exceed the employee experience. I mean, and that's borne out many times in my career. And when I arrived here, uh, I realized that we had some very important strategic uh, accomplishments we needed to uh, pay attention to over the next several years, not the least of which was putting in um, a new uh, electronic health record, uh, which is a radical change in an organization. So I I had an opportunity to work with a group, the Sandalani group, who are very uh, well known in, in the culture space talked to them for a while and said, okay, so, you know, we've got a new strategy. We've got a new agenda. We've got this big um, endeavor or uh, going down the road on with the electronic health record. And so I worked with them to bring in uh, a framework on how you would think about culture. And the thing about it is it's as, it, it starts with you. You know, it's as much about you because a lot of culture work is rah-rah, the company, work for the company. But this is a way in which you start to self-identify what's important to you, what matters to you. And then you build in the structure and, and the terminology and the language because, and you embed it. I'll tell you, number one, the culture has to be led by the CEO. You can't delegate that to human resources or to your organizational development team. You have to be out in front of this thing. And with that, you know, you have to understand what your, your purpose is. And our purpose here is very much targeted. I want what's best for kids and their families. 
And then, you know, we really articulate our values. And I think when you've got values that undergird your, uh, the reason for being, people start to sign up for that and uh, start to believe in it because you live out your values. So our values are purpose, collaboration, integrity, health, uh, and innovation. We've had those since 2011. We've gone back a couple of times to say, are those still the core values that we believe in? And, you know, what's interesting to me, I meet with employee groups around the organization, just chat sessions for an hour, just come and talk, let's talk about stuff. And the first thing I ask them is, okay, which of the values do you, do you espouse to? And it's interesting to me that whether it's facility services, uh, it, environmental services, nurses, doctors, whatever, they can, they can articulate the values and they can talk about which one they relate to. Most, most often it's purpose that we're here to serve the best interest of kids, but there's others with, you know, innovation, collaboration, obviously te- integrity has to be core to what we do. We have to be very honest. And so, um, you know, it's as much about the what, but it is also about the how. I will tell you, um, again, that that has been embedded in the organization. We have tools and techniques that we speak about in our common language. One of the things that they talk about in this Sendelaney work is a, a mood elevator. And a mood elevator is at the very bottom, it's depression, anger, very top, it's appreciation, because appreciation is one of the highest endorphin producing uh, feelings you can have. But at the center of that elevator is curious. And curious is a great word, because when tensions are high, or you're having disagreements, having to discern around things, you can say, are we at curious? And that stops everybody and really gets them to reground. So if they're starting to go down on the mood elevator, they can come back up and say, oh, yeah, we need to start at curious. And it's worked several times. We talk about the ladder of accountability, how big is your team. And those tools and techniques, while their tools and techniques have really, like I said, been embedded in the organization. And I will tell you um, that during the pandemic was uh, was so important. You know, you read about a lot about culture now. It's in all the business you know, literature uh, and the importance of that. But I will tell you, if you're going to try to start culture work in the midst of or immediately after a pandemic, you got a long, hard journey ahead of you. And we were fortunate that we'd begun this work back in 2011. So we've trained, I mean, um, all, you know, we train all of our employees, our physicians. Um, it, it's an all-in game. And um, I think people have, have really believed in it as opposed to it's a, it's a book on a shelf that maybe you pull out once in a while and try to use those words. I was really grateful that we had the value of health. And again, these values were uh, brought, were identified by leaders in our organization. Not, we didn't sit in a room by ourselves. Well, the value of health really became powerful during uh, particularly the pandemic because I could talk a lot about the importance of people taking care of themselves, both personally and professionally, because we know, we knew that People had a struggle with kids at home who were in school, <clears throat> worrying about their own personal safety um, and, and what being around COVID meant for them, if they should contract it and then bring it home to their families. I have a daughter who's a pediatric intensive care physician uh, in another state, and she often would call me on the way home from work crying, worrying that she was going to, she had been with COVID patients and bring it home to her uh, uh, little um five-year-old daughter, four-year-old daughter. So I, I experienced that, what it felt like personally as a grandmother and a mother. And I could really project that to the rest of the organization to say, whatever you do, take care of yourself. 
Mm-hmm. However you need to do that, take care of yourself. And again, financial worries and some of these other things came to play. And that's where we embedded resources to make sure that people had a paycheck um, because others, you know, in, in many cases, spouses and, and significant others lost their jobs. And so the only mm-hmm. breadwinner in the family had, you could be the person that worked at children's. And so the dynamic of that and the impact on the family could have been devastating if we uh, didn't hold true to employees are our most important resource. Mm-hmm. Curious if you might did curious about the curious comment you made uh, that the, the ladder, the elevator, um, if you could just maybe expand on that a little bit of uh, what does that really mean to be like, okay, we need to reset to curious, you know, we're, we're heading down a bad path. What does that mean to kind of, you know, what's maybe an example or, or what does that mean to, to reset to that level? I'll give you a good personal example. So um, my daughter and son-in-law were uh, moving to Milwaukee to do a, a residency here at Children's and they were um, interested in buying a house. And we knew that we were going to be house hunting with them. And we know that that is a very stressful time in people's lives. And so we sat down at breakfast the day that we were going to be going out at the, with the real estate uh, individual. And um, so I, I talked to them about the mood elevator, talked to them about curious. And so as we went through that three day journey, anytime tensions were getting a little high or they were becoming frustrated or discouraged, I'd say, let's get back to curious and let's talk about where we're at in space and time and how we want to think about this thing. What are the good things? What are the things that are struggles and uh, creating great difficulty? And let's see how we can move on. It just took the air out of the room. I mean, it just, I'll tell you another really important example. About five days after we went live with our electronic health record and it was, it was a big bang. So we went everywhere with it, including surgery, the anesthesia machines and things. About the fifth day, um, early in the morning, it was noticed that the system was starting to crash. Um, and, um, I, I can't give you the technical terms because I, I won't speak it, but I, so, and we had 30, 60 kids on the list for the OR that day. And I knew that that was going to be an incredibly uh, stressful, difficult and potential unsafe situation. So I ran over to the, the, uh, operating room and sat down with the, the chief of anesthesia. And the two of us looked at each other and I said, you didn't want this to happen. I didn't want this to happen. So let's be curious about what we're going to do right now about the next, you know, four or five hours till we get this situation resolved. And it, again, it immediately got you to a neutral platform and you could start to talk about how you would plan going forward as opposed to, I can't believe this happened. You know, why is this happening? Shouldn't we, you know, all those negative things that can happen because we seriously needed a plan. Fortunately, the system came back up within a few hours. Um, and, um, we were able to keep going and uh, there were no safety issues, but it was scary. It was scary. And that, that word curious again around here gets people to say, okay, I'm going to step back and let's, let's start to think about this in a more logical way. Peggy, maybe, uh, changing the subject a little bit. Um, one of my favorite events every year is uh, Briggs and Nails Run, which will be, you know, happening on September 17th again this year. Um, you know, I love just participating in the event. Uh, it, it actually, the race starts right outside of my office here on Wisconsin Avenue at the heart of our campus. And uh, it's been at 45 years at, uh, old now. It's one of the longest running fundraising events in Wisconsin. You know, you know, in your opinion, why is this event so special? And, you know, why do you look forward to it every year? Well, Mike, I'm with you. It's my favorite event. And when you stand outside your office in front of Jezu 
and you look up to about 20th Street and you see 10,000 people, uh, you know, there on behalf of children's and what we do here and the kids and their families. I, I, you just, I get tears in my eyes every year because I just can't, I, I'm just so grateful for the outpouring. One of my favorite parts of that, though, is we have our, our Heroes Tent mm-hmm. um, and right outside the Alumni Center. And these are the families who, who's, whose kids have had either heart surgery or cancer or, or something here at Children's. Mm-hmm. And they bring teams of walkers with the kids because we walk down to Summerfest. Some run, Mike runs. Um, uh, and, you know, you get to go uh, walk around and talk to these families and hear their stories and just hear what Children's has meant to them. And so, you know, just to know that and hear that from families reminds me and our teams of people just how important the work is we do every single day. And, you know, the steadfast support that we get from the generous individuals, the grateful families, the businesses. Um, over the years, we've raised over $22 million. Uh, again, outpouring of community support. Um, you know, we also see families who, who are in um, – who participate in Al's run who may have lost a child. And to me, I just am always in so much uh, respect for those families that can come back, even in the uh, tragic loss of a child and participate, raise money for, and many times they say, we just want to do this so we don't, so that no child ever has to experience what my child experienced in our family. So, you know, you just, uh, it's a power, uh, powerful demonstration of, of what we mean to this community and, um, and we got it makes us want to just keep doing more. Yeah. Uh, a few more uh, kind of business type questions for you. Um, you know, I think every organization it seems is you know having trouble hiring, and you know, I know healthcare is no different. And you mentioned that you know the the maybe you have a, a somewhat limited pool of people uh, who want to take on the, the the challenge of of caring for children and showing up for that that work. Um, and you know. We've had this pandemic. People are burnt out over the last few years. Maybe what strategies are you taking as you try to hire to retain um, healthcare professionals? Are you guys going down the road of some of the agency and, and contract or travel nurses or yeah. you know, how, what are you doing to, to kind of fill the gaps and, and build a workforce that, that can support you for the coming years? Yeah. So that's a great question, Arthur. I mean, you know, this is the first time since I've been at Children's where we've really had some, you know, uh, staffing challenges. And I think the pandemic, you know, your wife is a nurse manager. She's talked, I'm sure, extensively about just what it's been like to be in healthcare when you were in the midst of the pandemic. And then, you know, then the, the tide sort of turned and all of a sudden healthcare individuals weren't heroes like they once were. We became targeted, particularly with the mandate of vaccines and things like that. So it's taken a toll um, on healthcare workers. So, you know, First of all, most importantly, you have to have a culture of appreciation. Uh, you have to have engaged employees. You have to listen. You have to be actively involved and make improvements and changes. And again, like I said, I do roundtables once a month with employees just to hear what's on their mind. It, you know, it, just to understand. And I go back then and and uh, work with the senior leaders to because sometimes they tell me things that haven't bubbled up to the senior leaders you know, to make the changes because we need their input to make the best decisions. And, you know, it's particularly true when things are difficult. Uh, we learned a lot about work-life balance in the space um, from COVID. Um, you know, as I said, you know, 
people went through personal and professional struggles uh, different than they'd had experienced in the past, especially if they had young kids and they were no longer in school. So we focus a lot on the well-being of our teams. Uh, it's more important than others. And like I said, we have the value of health and we really take that very seriously. We've also embedded a lot of services in the, you know, what some will call burnout space. So we have therapists who are available to staff 24-7 beyond just the EAP program that most employers have uh, so that we can make sure that we've got real-time people, chaplains, et cetera, available as people struggle. Um, comp is an issue. Um, compensation is uh, definitely taken on a new um, a new trajectory in healthcare uh, because people are really struggling with hiring the workforce, uh, particularly nurses. And we're grateful to Marquette University for supplying us with some of the most uh, desirable nurses ever. Um, but uh, our turnover rate definitely has gone up. Now we're blessed because we have uh, a, a strong applicant pool, and so we're bringing people back in. Uh, but there's a tremendous amount of orientation time it takes, particularly for a nurse that has to go to the bedside. So um, we we are paying attention to the comp and benefits. We're staying competitive. Um, there's a lot of things going on in this community to attract nurses that um, are very expensive. And Arthur, you mentioned travelers. We do use a few, you know, several travelers as a temporary uh a temporary solution. We're grateful that they've chosen to come at work at Children's. Some stay. Some definitely stay. They like it here. Um, but um, we're going to continue to develop the pipelines and to pay uh, market-based compensation. And most importantly, it's the culture that make people want to stay here. We've got people that are as early as less than a year, and we've got people that actually have worked here more than 30 years. And so, and it's a pretty good um, balance of uh, new to people who've been here many, many years beyond 20 years. And that's in the professional services as well as others. So we've got to keep getting the pipeline coming in because we know these people uh, at the other end of the age curve are going to be retiring. So it's, it's an important issue because our product is our people taking care of our patients. Now, Peggy, one, one question we always like to ask the leaders on the podcast is, kind of you know and you and i talked before a little bit before we, we jumped on about decisions that you have to make and 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 what makes it to your desk and, and how you make them and i know you know we just you just had to make a tough decision and recently and maybe just describe you know what type of things you have to you you have to wrestle with well you know uh that's a great question i'm sure you could uh we could talk a long time about the decisions <laughs> that end up on our desk um well, the, the first thing, um, my team, and you heard this, Mike, at the board meeting this week, I mean, I never hear an idea about something we could do for kids that I don't love. And so um, one, of, one of my harder decisions is prioritization, because we like to say around here, we can do anything, we just can't do everything. So whether it's food security, housing security, medical care, mental behavioral health, I mean, right now we're working on a big lead initiative, because we know that there's kids in our community that are suffering from um, unfortunate consequences of lead poisoning, unresolved lead poisoning. So, you know, prioritization for me is a big challenge. Um, you know, and that prioritization has to entail decisions around uh, doing things that will have the biggest impact on the resources that we have available to us. And again, being a person that loves to do everything holistically, wrap ourselves around kids, um, that, that uh, is very hard. I really have a strong leadership team. And so what I love is the fact that 
when those tough decisions come my way. And as a CEO, you're it. You got to take it. But I also have the value of a group of individuals that I can sit and spend time with, talk through the issues, look at the, the, the positives and the risks and come up with good decisions so that, and again, always based on our purpose, always based on what we're here to do and, and how we can accomplish that. So, um, yeah, focusing on your North Star, having a great team and being able to use discernment as a way to think through things very carefully. I will tell you the pandemic was probably one that created the most challenge in terms of just what to do, losing a million dollars a day in revenue, but knowing you need to preserve the workforce. We had some tough conversations about that, but at the end we all decided the business is going to come back. So we need to, to, to do the right thing and take care of our most precious asset. And that's our people. So it's lonely at the top. Uh, our final uh, question on Leadership Lens always is, you know, who do you look to uh, in the business community uh, for leadership inspiration? Well, first and foremost, and I'm being very uh, honest about this, is uh, the Children's Board of Trustees. Um, we've got some of the most uh, amazing individuals leading companies, pl- playing important roles in companies uh, with a div- a diversification of talents, um, ethnicity, so to me, that's the group I look to for first and foremost for advice, uh, for role modeling, helping me navigate and to have that kind of relationship with your board of trustees with, again, some of the best uh, leaders in our community throughout my tenure at Children's has been uh, such a great asset, not only for me personally, but for uh, what we do here at Children's. So that's first. Um, I have several colleagues I look to in the children's hospital world. There's about 26 of us, like us, like me, uh, who are independent children's hospitals who are there solely uh, for the purpose and dedication of kids. And so that, that's another important group to me. Um, and we, with, with 26, we all know each other pretty darn well and, and can talk with one another. Uh, you know, in general, we have great leaders in Milwaukee, and I appreciate being part of the GMC and the MMAC. Uh, because I get to be around individuals who are really all about making our community one of the best places to live, to work, to play. And, um, you know, also then, you know, the anchor companies, Mike and I work with anchor institutions, the ones that are going to be here. Children's isn't moving. Uh, Marquette's not moving. So, you know, we know we're the ones that are going to be here. And so how do we as uh, collective industries and leaders uh, assure that we're doing the right things with that can create that collective impact. Um, and so, and I've had great mentors along the way, some that I learned good things from and some, some that I learned wouldn't ever want to be that. So, you know, it's again, being uh, collaborative, communicative and looking to those that really um, uh, help you. I just recently joined uh, the Zern LK board and being on a public company board has really been eye opening for me. And I've learned a tremendous amount just from mm. that lens because I've always been in healthcare. So, another great way to to have some mentors and to learn some things that um, are not necessarily uh, core to healthcare, but are core to business. So certainly, well, and plenty of ideas in our conversation here for people to learn from. So Peggy Troy, thanks for joining us on the biz times MKE podcast and leadership lens. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thanks Peggy. Thanks guys. This is Dan Meyer with BizTimes Media. You've been listening to the BizTimes MKE podcast 
For more business news and insights, be sure to go to biztimes.com and subscribe to any of our daily e-newsletters and our magazine, BizTimes Milwaukee.